Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week is an old friend of the show. She's been on before. I'd like to welcome back Joan Hawkins. Joan, hi. Hi, Michael. Joan Hawkins is a writer and author, both. She's a film studies professor right here at Indiana University. She's a spoken word performer. She's also the chair of the Writers Guild at Bloomington. You are a writing fool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a fool for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, along those lines, uh, Joan has a new book out. It's called School and Suicide. It's put out by Alien Buddha Press. It's uh, it's a memoir, Joan. Right, yeah. It's a series of short memoir pieces that are kind of loosely linked. And it covers a lot of your life between the ages of 9 and 22 years old. Right. Your first creative book, you call it. What yeah. does that mean? One of the things about being a professor at IU is that we it's a publisher parish kind of place. So we keep doing research, we keep doing academic writing. So I have three academic books and a lot of academic essays. And then um, I have some published poetry, but this is my first book of collected short stories. Now, I understand that early on in your life, when you were a kid, Mm-hmm. You did creative writing. Yeah, a And lot. then sort of fell out of it. I fell out of, actually, yeah. I, and I think a, lot of, a lot, think a lot of us in academia experience this, that I had done a lot of creative writing, and then the kind of the rigors of the job took over, and I started doing mainly um, academic scholarly writing. And then um, my husband died. And when my husband died, I found that these memories, not just of him, but of my whole life, started kind of bubbling to the surface. And about that same time, I had gotten involved with the Burroughs Century, the big convention that we put on here, conference we put on here uh, to mark the 100th birthday of the writer William S. Burroughs. Uh And through uh, working on that, I met Tony Brewer, who at that time was the chair of the Writers Guild. Uh And I became involved with the Writers Guild and started writing again, which was wonderful. Hooray for you. I know. (laughs) Yeah, that opens up a whole new part of your life and your brain. Yeah, yeah. Well, school and suicide, uh, which it might be a a pretty relevant topic, especially uh, this time of year. Yeah. Christmas time, we all think, uh, oh, we're going to get together with family and it's going to be warm and wonderful and happy and joy throughout, but not for everybody. No, no. Thanksgiving and Christmas both are the two worst times of the year to work in crisis intervention. And when I was working on crisis intervention, I mean, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day were the worst days of the year. You actually worked those days. Yeah. We used to have like a lottery to figure out who would get what shift on those days. And who and would lose? It yeah. would be the one working. Huh? And and it's and it's just it's a very hard time of the year because we even if we know that kind of the hallmark image that we have of what the family is like and what the holidays are like, even if we know that, it doesn't change the fact that we feel impacted by it. And people who don't have that in their lives feel so lonely in the holidays. So I guess this is a time to put in a plug if you are having any 
any feelings at all about or thoughts about suicide, please dial 988, which is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That's the brand new thing yeah. uh, within the last couple of months. Yeah, uh, and that, it's that, wonderful. And it's, it's just, nationwide. Yeah, and and because it's an easy number to remember. I mean, the, when I was working crisis intervention, I mean, one of the things, I mean, we put our little uh, stickers and logos in every phone booth, every place we could think of to put it, but we were always aware of the fact of like who when you are at your like lowest moment is going to be in there with the yellow pages at that time it was yeah. the yellow pages looking up you know suicide prevention it's right. just like oh my god or even or even if there are stickers here and there in public yeah. places, you're not going to whip out a little notebook <laughs> and say, oh, boy, I better take this down right now. I know, just in case, right? Well, the beauty of this is a lot of the stories here have to do with you working in a yeah. Bay Area suicide prevention hotline. And you know what? Let us go right to you reading from the oh, book. There's a okay. beautiful opening piece and the essay, the first essay, is called My Writing Teacher. Here it is, Joan. Take it right here. And would you read from here to there? And uh, that'll set us up. Go ahead, Joan. Okay. Most of us working the phones used a handle, an alias in case some cop or speed freak or infatuated client tried to track us down, a persona to match the online personality. Tom was Moodus. Harry was Speed. Women tended to choose literary names. Sharon went by Emily. Ginger, more radical by far, called herself George. Elliot or Sand, Speed asked her once. If you bothered to read them, George answered, <laughs> you'd know. Sharp-tongued among ourselves, acid wit, gallows humor. It was 1969. Anything could happen at any time, and when we weren't working the phones, we were on edge. We were Damien's switchboard, a crisis hotline and intervention center located on the no-man's-land borderline separating San Mateo, California from San Francisco. Our goal was to buffer between counterculture freaks and the man, to keep our people off the street and outside institutions as long as humanly possible. We provided drug counseling, draft counseling, pregnancy and abortion counseling, birth control information, and sometimes basic sex ed. We did mental health referrals. We kept track of crash pads, places where a stranger could spend the night, and safe houses where runaways and victims of domestic violence could shelter. We maintained a rides board, hooking up people who had wheels with people needing transportation. We talked frightened mystics down from bad acid trips. But most often, we just rapped, as we called it then. With the rusty percolator on overdrive and KSAN humming in the background, we would talk to lonely, dispossessed, disheartened people all night long. A lot of our work was suicide prevention. What I love about listening to Joan read, her voice is so smooth. It's so warm. It's so inviting. Thanks for doing that. Oh, I, I just it, it just makes me feel good all over. Even though it's not a terribly <laughs> you know happy or, or delightful topic, but but think about this, uh, folks who are listening. Joan was 16 years old at yeah. this time. She was a punk kid. Yeah. And that was the Bay Area. This is the 1960s. You know what was going on in the Bay Area? There was the Haight-Ashbury, yeah. there was the whole scene 
the Summer of Love 1967, yeah. around that time. Yeah. And drugs played a lot of... Uh, yeah, yeah. We were doing a lot of... Um, I mean, we called ourselves a crisis intervention center. I mean, there were all the things I mentioned, but a lot of the work that we were doing, too, was um, either trying to help people get into rehab trying to help people who didn't want to go into rehab still negotiate what was happening to them. Mm. We weren't doing needle exchanges at that time. And the diseases were different at that time. So uh-huh. at that time, it was, you know, like hepatitis right. was terrible. Tetanus was terrible. AIDS was not heard of. We hadn't had AIDS, but boy, there was, you know, there was like syphilis was a problem, a yeah. resurgence of syphilis. And, we, and chlamydia started sort of while I was working at the switchboard. Yeah, it was just, it was a heavy time. But you're, you're a kid. I know I was a kid. You should, you should be out <laughs> running and jumping and playing, but, and here you are maybe talking people down from a ledge. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, I think one of the things that people don't think about so much when they think about the 60s, and especially the, I think the media images don't help with this because you always see, you know, like hippies dancing in, in Golden <laughs> Gate Park with the flowers. How wonderful right? it all was. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was the Vietnam War, no. and there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a draft. And that meant that, you know, I tell my students this, that meant that when I was in high school, I turned 18 when I was in high school. And when I was in high school, the guys who were walking down the hall were going to have to register. And when they registered at age 18, they would have to decide, well, first of all, whether or not to register. It was illegal not to, but whether or not to run the risk of breaking the law. If they did register, was there any way that they could, if they didn't want to go to Vietnam, was there any way that they could um, declare conscientious objector status or did they have any health issues? Some people registered and then just tried not to show up to the draft board if their number got called up. Yeah. And then there were people who had to make the decision if their number did get called up, like either they don't go and they run the risk of being arrested or they run away to Canada or to Sweden. They leave their country, possibly for the rest of their lives. And but, I do believe there was a college deferment, too. That's yeah, why there was a, such yeah. a, an onrush into sociology and education. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and that's the other part of it is, so we don't think about the fact that kids at age 18 were having to make like huge existential decisions about their lives in ways that kids don't have now because we have a volunteer army. Yeah. So there was that. There was also this huge, huge public intellectual force because not only were people going into college for deferments, they were staying there as long as they possibly could. When I went, I started at San Francisco State when I was 18. And when I entered San Francisco State as an incoming freshman, the average age of undergraduates was 26 years old. Because huh. we had all these guys who would... They'd Hanging be getting, out. Yeah, they would just be getting ready to graduate, and they would start... It would start a new degree. Hmm. I think I'm really interested in biochemistry now. I think I'll go study that for a while. I mean, I remember being in uh, cafes in San Francisco, like working on papers. And it was, it was just like nothing I've ever experienced before because you'd come up to something, you would just yell out to the cafe, you know, where did Hannah Arendt talk about the banality of evil? <laughs> and some guy three tables over would say, Eichmann in Jerusalem, and he would yeah. keep working on whatever he was working on. It was just, it was amazing. Our guest, Joan Hawkins, uh, a professor here at Indiana University, her new book, School and Suicide, 
Joan, a lot of it, as I say, has to do with you working at this crisis intervention center at the age of 16, but I'm still trying to figure out why you at 16? What would drive a kid to do that? Oh, well, that's actually an interesting story. That's kind of a a feminine story. So my boyfriend had heard that Damien's switchboard was opening up. Okay. And he had... He had dreams of glory. He thought that, you know, he could go and he would be saving people. And he, you know, I mean, he really had this image of himself as being like this heroic figure working at the crisis intervention center. Oh, the white knight. Yes. I went with him thinking, there's no way in hell I'm going to do this. I mean, you know, you're responsible for people's lives. There's no. And so we arrived and they kind of, the people who were there who were going to interview him, they kind of separated us. And he was taken off to do his interview, and I was with this, I was with two other people. And this woman who became a very good friend of mine, Jenny Tripp, she started talking to me. And I was saying, like, no, I'm not here to, I'm not here to volunteer. And we started talking. She was asking me about this and that and this and that and this and that. And she said, I just did a practice interview with you, and you need to sign up. And there was something about the way she presented it, like, as I said here, you know, we're trying to keep our people safe from these institutions. And I ended up signing on the dotted line. Wow. Were were you a serious, an overly serious kind of a kid? Or were you a fun lover? I mean, did this fit in with who you were? (laughs) I I think when when I was little... I was a very serious kid. Huh. By the time I was in high school, I was uh, very much a fun lover. Uh-huh. Very much. But like I said, there was always that, you know, the big, the big political, yeah. you know, specter in the background. And so even those of us who were fun lovers were, uh, we had, we were, we were uh, old beyond our years, mature beyond our years. Hey, right across uh, the bay. Yeah, the Black Panthers were yeah. starting up at that time, and uh, I recall seeing pictures uh, uh, recently of the Black Panthers standing on the steps leading up to the state house, all armed. Yeah, uh, yeah. because back then, believe it or not, it was an open carry state. Yeah. California was. Yeah. This takes us back to you know the the kind of interesting conversations we're having about Second Amendment rights yeah. now, because boy, as soon as people saw the Black Panthers marching in the streets of Oakland with guns, California moved to become not such an open carry state. Right. Very quickly. And the NRA was key in that. They said yeah. we got to control this. I know. Nobody was talking about the rights of African American, the Second Amendment oh, rights no. of African Americans. That's crazy talk. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Joan Joan has done so much. I'm going to give you a little background on Joan Hawkins. Uh, As I say, she's been on this show before. And the reason you were on a couple of years ago, you were one of the organizers of Wounded Galaxies 1968, Paris, Prague, Chicago. That year, 1968, I like to call it the honest... Horribilis. Yes, it was. So it many was. things went on. There were there were the barricades in the streets of Paris. Yeah. There were tanks running through Prague. There were the police beating protesters and passers by in Chicago. Yeah. You were celebrating the fifty year anniversary of that yeah. with a conference and a festival here at Indiana. Yeah, we had a we had a conference, an academic conference. We had 
um, several readings. I mean, we had a film series. We had a couple of art exhibits. We did a lot. We did a lot. We had musical performances. Yeah. We burned a piano. <laughs> <laughs> oh, out on, and, uh, on Dunmail. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's one of my favorite. <laughs> one of my favorite memories of that whole conference is we had been talking to the university fire department and people, and they seemed very, you know, kind of blasé about the fact that we were going to be setting this thing on fire, and we kept saying, "Well, should we have some sand around? Oh, it'll be okay. You know, should we cut back some of the trees? Oh, it'll be okay." And at some point, you could actually see like the light bulb go off. And like, wait a minute, you're going to set it on. Fire. <laughs> and yeah, with an accelerant. We're going to set it on fire. And then suddenly it was like, yes, we need sand. <laughs> now hold on a minute here. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only that, uh, just this year is the 100th anniversary of the birth of Jack Kerouac. Yeah, yeah. And you did a nice article in the Writer magazine, the September-October issue, uh, called Kerouac at 100. Yeah. Are you still reading Jack Kerouac? I, I actually am. We did. Um, what, the group of us who were... So the Writers Guild yeah. was um, helping to curate a film series that we did. We did two films at IU Cinema. We did one film at the library, and we did one film through the writer. Uh-huh. And it wasn't just Kerouac. It was sort of Beats writ large. But um, as part of that, we also had a separate reading group where we were reading stuff by Jack Kerouac and also two memoirs by women in the beat movement, one of whom was Joyce Johnson, who was Mm -hmm. with Kerouac when he published On the Road. So we read these two books, and we read a book by uh, Leroy. Amiri Baraka used to be called Leroy Jones. Uh And when he was called Leroy Jones, he was married to a white Jewish woman, Hetty Jones. So she also wrote a memoir called How I Became Hetty Jones. And that's for people who are interested in kind of a different take on the advent of civil rights and, and the growth of black power. That's a really interesting it's a really interesting memoir for showing how how the whole kind of structure of what we believed about racial politics, how it yeah. shifted, yeah. how it shifted. Because we really, we really had been. I mean, when I was younger, we were very naive. We really did think if you just integrated, if you just integrated, everything would be cool. You know? Joan Hawkins is the author of the new book, School and Suicide, short biographical sketches from her youth back in the Bay Area, which was, uh, in a lot of ways, the center of the universe back in the mid, well, the late 60s. You've got the summer of love, (laughs) and you had Monterey Pop and uh, Monterey Jazz, those festivals. It was like everything was coming together right over there. It felt like it. And, of course, we had the hate, and the hate Ashbury yeah. just attracted a lot of people. And now, of course, I mean, at the time, I wasn't thinking about things like, you know, urban infrastructure. And now I realize, like, what, what a huge impact it had on the city, having all of these young people coming into yeah. San Francisco and um, some, of the, some of the reaction to it that we didn't understand at the time. Yeah. Now I understand had to do with the fact that, that all of these all of these systems, like sewer systems, <laughs> were being impacted in ways that had everybody quite alarmed. But, well, sure. It, it, it was like there was a clarion call yeah. uh, around the net, maybe even around the world, come yeah. here. Yeah. If you're of a certain yeah. age and a certain mindset, yeah. the Haight-Ashbury, that was yeah. the locus. 
the yeah. focus. Yeah, well, there was even that song, you know, all across the nation. It's a new vibration, people in motion if you're going to San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> Those days. It. I know. Joan, how did this experience affect you? Oh. How did you grow if you did grow through it? Yeah, I, um, I don't think I ever got over it, actually. And that's the other thing people don't realize about the 60s. Because there was so much going on internationally, Yeah, we saw ourselves as participating not just in a local movement or even a national movement asking for change or asking to end the war. We really saw ourselves as participating in an international movement that was heading toward socialism. Yeah, And, and we, we thought... Again, rather naively, that every kind of every step that we accomplished, that that was done, and then we could move to the next thing, and then we could move to the next thing. And one of the real sadnesses in my life has been seeing how so much of what we got done has been being undone. The fact that once again, you know, now we're in like perpetual war. Yeah. And um, the fact that voting rights are being scaled back. You know, my old, our older brothers and sisters who participated in SNCC and risked their lives. Yeah. And and to see what they were accomplishing scaled back. That would be the Student Nonviolent Student Coordinating, Coordinating Committee. Committee. Stokely right. Carmichael. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and in fact, I remember... This would have been like 69 or 70. Yeah. I remember being in the back of a VW. This is very much part of the days. Being in the back of a VW van. There were a whole bunch of us. And we were driving someplace. And somewhere we were talking about the fact that uh, there was this generation gap between what we believed and what our parents believed. And, and somebody started this riff of like, well, do you think there will be a generation gap with our kids. And we were convinced, like, oh, of course, no, there won't be. Because we're and, wonderful. Because we're wonderful. <laughs> and, and so we started saying, yeah, can you imagine our kids coming home and saying, black and white people aren't, e aren't equal? And we would laugh. And, you know, <laughs> women and men aren't equal. And we would laugh. <laughs> we just thought, you know, that there was no way that these things could be rolled back. And imagine more than 50 years later, we still have the same damn problems. Problems, I know, which is just is so demoralizing. It just means, so for people who are listening to this, for young people who are listening to this, this does not mean you should give up. <laughs> <laughs> it means do it smarter than we did. Of course, there have been improvements. Yeah. For gosh sake, the uh, Congress of the United States just passed uh, the Marriage Act yeah. uh, that recognizes both interracial yeah. and same-sex marriages. Imagine that. The year 2022, we have to legislate to say, hey, you better recognize an interracial marriage. Right. It's not even saying that people can get married. It's just that if they are in a state where they were able to get married, you have to recognize the marriage. If you're in another state. Yeah. 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 Isn't that crazy? It is nuts. It's, but it is it's nuts. happening. Yeah. So there is cause for a little bit of optimism. Yeah. Now, as a, yeah. a, a phone person, yeah. someone call, you're 16 years old, someone yeah. calls up and says, I feel like I want to kill myself. Yeah. Do you just say, hey, don't worry, everything's <laughs> going to be good? No, 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 no. What, what we were told, every, every call, first of all, they usually didn't call saying, I want to kill myself. Oh. 
um, they would usually start calling, and you could sometimes tell from the tone of voice that things weren't going so well. And it would suddenly, we'd get to the point where they were talking about, you know, everything seems so bleak and so down. I wonder what the point is of going on. And that's a that's a trip right there, right. yeah. And and so what we had to so first of all, every what we always believe is every call is a call for help, no matter where somebody is in the process. Huh. And the way that things worked was that the first thing you would do is to find out, okay, is this just a feeling that you're starting to have? Or do you have plans? Do you know how you would kill yourself? If they knew how they would kill themselves, did they have the means at hand uh-huh. to kill themselves? And if they had that, had they by any chance taken any pills tonight? And the things the, the things that you always listen for were things nobody, at least nobody that I ever spoke to uh, doing suicide prevention work ever said, I want to die. Nobody ever did. What they said uniformly was, I just can't stand the pain. Wow. I want to make the pain stop. You know, people come to you when you're doing crisis intervention, where people come to you when they're truly at the end of their tether, where they have tried. I mean, they've tried other things. They've talked to their friends. And one of the things that is interesting is that for people who actually do try to commit suicide, who actually do take take pills or try to do something. Their friends and relatives usually say that in the days and sometimes even weeks leading up to the actual suicide attempt that the person seems so much better. Like the family and friends kind of pull away because suddenly the person seems like happier, easy, more, you know, less despondent. And the reason is is because they've taken a decision. They've made a decision. There's a relief. Yeah, that they don't have to be thinking about it anymore. And I've heard that old saw, and I wonder how true it is or not, that you don't kill yourself at the absolute depths of your depression. You yeah. kill yourself when you're coming out of it because you have more energy, you exactly. have more yeah. agency. Yeah. A friend of mine who suffers from who suffers terribly from depression, he said that to me once. He said it was always amazing to him how people would commit suicide because when he was in those terrible places with his depression, he couldn't think to do anything. And and you're even right. get up off the sofa. Sofa. Yeah. And and you're right. It's at that point where you actually start feeling a little bit of a lift that suddenly it occurs to you that I don't need to go through this again. I yeah. could just stop it. Gee, we hate to be downers, but this is the season <laughs> this when is that kind the of season. thing yeah. might happen. Joan Hawkins, uh, a professor here at Indiana University, uh, she's in the media school. She teaches uh, film theory and history. She's a writer. She's an author. She's got this brand new book, wonderfully well-written. School and Suicide, Alien Buddha Press. Where can they get it? You, well, you can get it from local bookstores and, um, and Amazon, unfortunately, our corporate lord and master. And you can get it from me. Joan, uh, you can hear her, hey, just about every year at the Spoken Word stage yes. at the 4th Street Festival of Arts and Crafts. She's the chair of the Writers Guild at Bloomington. If you're a writer, get on to that website, Writers Guild at yes. Bloomington, yes. and uh, meet writers, a lot of people. Yeah, it's Writers Guild Bloomington, all one word, writersguildbloomington.com. Joan, uh, good luck with this book. It's Thank a you. beautiful book, even though it's a depressing topic, but it is, it's lovely 
Thank you for being on Big Talk. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. 